Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Emily talks about theme and variations, a type of composition popular with many composers throughout classical music. Jill compares two wines from a region in France with strict rules in order to demonstrate how they vary despite the rules. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good day, Emily Reese. Good day, Jill Mott. Welcome to Scores and Pours, everyone. Yep. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, what? We are going to talk about theme and variations. So specifically, I'm going to talk about two examples of theme and variations, one of which has a very simple texture to hear, so it's just piano, and the other one has a much more thick and complex texture, but is based off of a melody that I'm pretty sure we all know pretty well. And when I rewind, (laughs) and I say, what is theme and variations, Emily? Yes. Simply put, a theme and variations is when a composer takes a melody and they flesh it out. So let's say you sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star from start to finish. That's your whole melody. Mm -hmm. Then after that, the composer takes that melody and plays around with it and varies it, sometimes very slightly and sometimes the variations are in a different key. So we can go all kinds of directions with it, but that's the the, kind of the simplest version. There's a a melody, which is in the title of the type, is called the theme. Okay. Okay, so that's just the part that's presented in the early moments, and then uh, that theme or melody gets toyed with by the composer for a number of times. of the theme. Four, five, six, seven... Up to 32 or more times. I mean, there are plenty Whoa. of themes and variations. 32? There are, there are the ones that have well, like dozens? Well, Goldberg variations has 30-some oh, yeah. variations, and the Diabelli variations oh. are quite complex and lengthy. And yeah, wow. well, there's all, variations on a theme by Paganini by Rachmaninoff has, I think, uh, uh, 20-some variations. So Crazy. Yep. They when, can get pretty nuts. When you had mentioned that you, because you and I had listened to a couple you know, over over the course of the podcast and us knowing each other. And when you said you wanted to do that because you'd, you'd really like the sonata that we're going to listen to, mm-hmm. um, it made me think about, gosh, how am I going to, how am I going to get my head around trying to explore that, a theme and variations of the theme in wine? Yeah. And I thought about, you know, we talked about, do we go the sparkling route, uh, mm-hmm. pet nuts, stuff like that. And we settled on a region in the Loire Valley of France. That, of France, thank you, that uh, is very well known for, they make a little white and rosé, but they're very well known for like 90 plus percent of production, I would surmise, is red wine. Okay. Um, and so I thought about taking a region, which is a protected region of origin, so mm-hmm. that means it has rules. You have to follow the rule book in order mm-hmm. to put the name of the region on the label. Mm-hmm. Like champagne or some such. Yep, exactly. So... Basically, we'll divulge the region in a, in a moment, but we're, I'm taking a theme, which is the 
way you have to make wine, the way you have to grow your grapes, mm-hmm. and showing that the, there can be quite a bit of variation, even though you know the the melody is changing. Yep. Even though the melody has been set from the beginning. Right. You know. Yep. So that's yep. that's how we're going to approach Love theme it. and variations in wine. So what's the name of the grape? The name of the grape that we're going to taste today is Cabernet Franc. Uh, in the region, uh, you can mix a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon in your Chinon is the region. Okay. Um, but the what we're going to taste today is 100% Cabernet Franc. Okay. Two and that times. is a red grape. It is a red, a rouge, <laughs> as it were. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Rouge. Uh, okay. That's so funny because I thought Chinon was the name of the grape. But there's also a grape, right, called Chenin? There is a grape called Chenin. See, so that gets confusing because there's a grape called Chenin, but Chinon is a region and in the Loire Valley of France. And in Chinon, when you have a Blanc, when you have a white Chinon, it is Chenin. And, <laughs> but if, 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 if you want to make it easier to remember, uh, yeah. what's, what's cool too is in this region in Chinon, uh, they don't call it, Cab- I mean, they call it Cabernet Franc because that's mm-hmm. the internationally recognized name for the grape, but they call it Breton. So if you're speaking with a, a local about okay. the way they make wine or, or you know, someone in a tavern, they may say, would you like a glass of Breton? You'll be like, no, I want a glass of Cab Franc. And they'll be like, you dummy. It's the same thing. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, uh, should we taste the second one or should we wait? Like, let's talk, wait, let's talk. I wanna... let's, let's music. Oh, let's music? Let's music. Because I, I think totally. people, I think, I think people are going to, we're going to have an easier time. With, okay. th- this, I feel like, is a topic that if I were to say, hey, guys, come with us on this journey of theme and variations in wine and classical, people are going to be like, you know, that sounds like homework and too hard. <laughs> but once you listen to it, it's super interesting. Like, yeah. yes, when we, you and I were doing a little homework together, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't wait for people to realize how easy this is to get their head around theme and variations. And you're going to yeah. be like, you know, like driving around in your car and you're going to hear one and you're going to be like, Jill and Emily, I hurt you guys so much. I know what this is now. Uh, and with wine, it's I think it's a little easier because there are books written on it uh, at, at length for both sommeliers and, you know, yeah. uh, people that are just wanting to get into wine. Yeah. But so we'll, we'll, we'll get there. All right, uh, we'll get there. Yeah, let's um, – so do you mind expanding a little bit on if there is an expansion on theme and variations? If not, do you mind uh, – telling me and everyone else yeah. why you chose your first <laughs> your first sonata that you sure wanna... uh, well uh, theme and variations it's you know as we mentioned earlier you hear the melody then there's a bunch of different kinds of it uh, that that form as it were as it's called that form of music has been around for a long long time there were you know composers doing things like this in the baroque era and before so it's not an uncommon uh, concept in music. And I, I often think of it like um, for it, for someone like me, when I get a tune stuck in my head, an earworm or something, when I get some kind of little fragment of a melody in my head and it's just stuck in there and it's playing over and over in my head, a lot of times I'll vary it in my head and, hmm. you know, do like – extra parts and you know what I mean? Just, I'll remember that the next time Tina Turner gets yeah, stuck in my head. Exactly. I'll just, just start playing with that bit. melody yes. and see what happens. <laughs> and then I think as over time, you know, somebody will say, and this is something that, you know, I think was not uncommon as a music student. Somebody will be like, what's in your head right now? Like what tune is in your head right now? And sometimes you're like, I have no idea, but it sounds like this. 
And I think that that comes mm. from like morphing of some melody that was stuck in the head a couple hours before or something, yeah. you know, like some kind of transformation. But um, but sometimes I feel like the theme and variations maybe started that way with composers who were like, man, I love this melody, but it also sounds really good if I do this to it, but it sounds really good if I do this to it. And I know that it's like in a happy, beautiful major key, but wow, listen to how solemn it sounds in minor, and it really works well in minor as well. Yeah. And wow, what if I do this flourish thing here, and the left hand does this in the piano and or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I, I kind of think that must be <laughs> how it all started, you know? So I don't know. That's a little more about theme and variation. So the one that I chose to share uh, is by Beethoven, Ludwig von Beethoven my guy, one of my guys, and uh, he was so good at this type of form. He, he just, he loved playing in this field, as it were, of theme and variations. And for his 12th piano sonata, so a piano sonata means there's just a piano playing by itself, doing a little ditty, mm -hmm. usually with at least three movements. This one is four. Uh, and it's unusual in its structure because Beethoven, even in this was in his early compositional period, this was right around the year 1800, and this, so this is what we call early Beethoven, he's already bored with convention. So rather than doing what he's normally done in the okay. past with how he lays out his piano sonata, he's like, well, I know that traditionally the first movement is supposed to be structured in one way, but I don't want to do that. I want to do a theme and variations. And so he did. And it's like the loveliest little, most charming melody that he wrote. And then he just does five variations on it and it's over. And it's just, it's really a beautiful piece. So this is Opus 26, early Beethoven, right around the year 1800. His middle period wasn't long away. His middle period started within just a couple of years, but, uh, but still, it's... And did you say that uh, when you when you talk about you know the theme the melody, did I hear you right when in our in our previous conversations that it's like mm -hmm. a statement? Yeah, it's kind of like, like you're making the statement of like what the yep. theme is going to be. Yep, and and of course the you a composer you want people to be able to tell that it's a theme and variations. So a composer is, I mean, practically going to try and write a melody that's. Very simple, mm -hmm. so that you can track the fact yeah. that you're hearing. You could literally, to a lot of these variations, sing along, sing yeah. the main melody while the rest during the the rest of variations. If that makes sense. Sweet. Let's listen yeah. to it. All right. Let's I'm so excited. Right. Is it common that it's in three eight time? Is that uh, is that just his? No. Okay. Yeah. No. That, that's that's not... just Beethoven being a badass. Yeah. Okay. So much I could say about this piano sonata. People almost never talk about this piano sonata, especially when they're talking about Beethoven's early period. They're always talking about uh, the Pathétique, which was his eighth piano sonata. 
other piano sonata they always talk about from Beethoven's early period is the Moonlight Sonata, which is probably his most famous piano sonata. So I'll put in a little example of that right now. And within his early period are hidden gems like this. And did he finish this around? Did I, did I, when I was looking at dates, mm-hmm. was his first symphony around this time period or no? Or yeah. had he already, had, was that long gone? No, no. Okay. It was around here. He was like 27 or something like that when he wrote his first symphony. So he was much older. I mean, you know, when you think about Mozart writing symphonies when he was like eight or 10 or not, four probably or whatever. But um, he waited. He waited a while because symphony, at the time, and we've talked about this in other episodes. Not that we've released yet, but we'll give due diligence to the symphony uh, soon. For sure. Um, that was considered the pinnacle, the the creme de la creme of orchestral music. Was you, if you can write a symphony, you're a god. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So he waited a while to do that. Um, but but yeah. Long answer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> What's and his this? first, his piano concertos were right around here too. Some of them, not all of them. Okay. All right. So here we go. This is uh, what we'll first hear him do is the the melody that then he'll vary five times. And then do you, do you mind uh, pointing out for our beautiful listeners uh, when when the th- when, when the, the first variations. yes <laughs> of course yeah thank no. you let's let's listen let's thank listen you Miss Reese hmm. you're welcome Miss Mott I love this piece. Still, still presenting the theme. First variation. So he's still including fragments of the melody in here to help you hear what's happening. So here's 
The continuation of this is still the first variation. And it's kind of defined by these rising arpeggios in the bass. Uh, not right this second, but hear it in the left hand, doing mm -hmm. all these rising. And the right hand kind of answers. Yeah. Here comes the second variation. This one's pretty energetic. Yeah, we talk, I love didn't this we, one. Didn't yeah. we talk about it being like kind of happy? Like I felt like this is like... It is, but I think that that... It reminds me of that. Yep. Yep. See, and he's still really bringing out the melody in that inner voice. You can still hear, you know. always talk about how Beethoven was not a, the nicest person and he was really difficult and I'm sure that's true but you listen to this and you're like wow he had a very tender heart variation three this is the minor variation right so now mood completely changes mm -hmm. So we're recording this in Minneapolis, and uh, we're on the cusp of a, a pretty big thunderstorm that's looming. It's just, you know, coming south of us. We can hear it. Um, but if you look outside and see how dark it is, it's very appropriate for this. It is. This, this variation. stormy variation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. four and we're back to the charm yeah I wrote um, I wrote that it reminded me of just like it, it reminds me of a pillow you know it's like softer it's a little bit more like yep. it's not as it's major but it's it's not it's peppy but it's not like there's not yeah. as much staccato I guess yeah yeah even though that right there is a little stick. <laughs> it's very sweet. This, by the way, is uh, hands down one of my favorite pianists to listen to when I listen to Beethoven piano sonatas, and his name is Richard Good, G-O-O-D-E. Here's the last variation.
this one is very fluid. Yeah, it was. I reminds me of like a um, like I, I wrote in my notes. The fifth variation reminds me of like a danza, like a like a yep. like a if someone were waltzing to yes. this, even though you know the time is. Yeah. Um, yep. It just reminds me of being like, you know, you're in someone's arms and they're whipping you around the room ever ever you yep. ever so. Reminds me of this. Yes. Is this still part of the variation, or is this kind of finishing it, finna tying it together? This is the what we would call the coda. The coda. So okay. this is uh, a coda is when you present a bunch of new material at the end just to get to the end. it it's wonderful and amazing and i love it oh beautiful beethoven piano sonata number 12 that's the first movement this it's a notable sonata for first of all having four movements which is a kind of unusual at the time but also for having a funeral march inside of it one of the movements is a funeral march was that the minor chord or the, the minor excuse me then yeah the third movement is a funeral march, which is also weird because the third movement is the slow movement, and normally the second movement would be the slow movement, and oh, the, the third movement would yeah. be the scherzo. But he makes the second movement the scherzo. Gotcha, gotcha. I was thinking, yeah. I was thinking of the the first within the first movement. Yeah, gotcha. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. Within yeah. the within entire the entire sonata. sonata. Yeah. My apologies. Yep, four movements, one of which is a funeral march. Yeah. Beethoven. And the fourth movement is a rondo, which you and I spoke about off the record recently, and we'll we'll bring into an episode of Scores and Pours at For some point. Sure. So, yeah. Speaking of rondo, let's bring this let's, round to let's some wine. Let's rondo onto some wine. <laughs> let's get ready to rondo. Let's get ready to rondo. All right. Uh, yeah. well, so uh, I chose the region of Chinon because uh, Cabernet Franc, otherwise known as Breton, um, is a is a really fun grape that tends to be. Like, I think a lot of times when you have Cabernet Franc, it's very uncommon that people don't use the same adjectives, whether they be wine folk or otherwise. Interesting. You know, it's very common that you hear graphite, pencil lead, fall leaves. Those are like three very common descriptors for Cabernet Franc. Okay. And I wanted to pick a, a grape and a region that... I knew was going to display those characteristics mm -hmm. so that we could try to see the variation of the, the common theme a little easier. If we were to say, you know, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, sometimes they're 
really oaky. Sometimes they're really eucalyptus-y. Sometimes they're really cigar-y, and it kind of depends. And granted, that, of course, can happen with Cabernet Franc as well, that there's a, there are different variations, but the, it's a little bit it's a little bit more concise and easier to extract, I guess. Um, so I chose a region uh, within the Loire Valley, like I said. And when you read online, I mean, the rule book in France to be able to make a wine in a region and slap that region's name on it yeah. is usually like the Old Testament, the New Testament, <laughs> and another testament combined, you know? It's like, Jesus, really, people? Um, and some people don't like that. Some people say, well, wait, if we all need to follow these rules, that's going to yeah. put us in a pretty narrow window of how something can taste, mm-hmm. which is kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it, it can help us uh, learn about the area's possibilities a little easier because everybody has to follow some rules. Yeah. So, yeah. so this region, um, I, I wrote down just a couple of, of facts for people. So Chinon, in order to be called Chinon, you, uh, within the region, there are a lot of different villages. You have to be one of 18 communes or villages. Your, your winery needs to be based there okay. in order to be called Chinon. Uh, there are 2,000 plus hectares, which is you know, neither big nor small for a region. It just kind of depends. Compare on, that. Give me a sense of how big that would be compared to. There know. are two point four what two point four six uh, hectares in an acre. So a hectare is bigger. A hectare is smaller. Me, smaller, yeah, okay. than an acre. An acre is bigger. Okay. By okay. you know. Yeah. One, however many right. times. Cool. So you've got uh, a region that is mostly no- known for its red wine, of course. Um, and in order to be called Chinon, mostly you'll find 100% Cabernet Francs. But like I said, they can add up to 10% Cabernet Sauvignon. It's found in a lot of different vineyards. It's a very okay. famous grape. grows like a weed everywhere. So, hey, okay. if you throw in 10% for color, for complexity, feel okay. free to do so. Okay. Uh, you also need to, um, in order to be called Chinon, you can't just grow it anywhere in these 18 communes. It needs to be uh, on certain types of soil. Really? So, um, you know. Is Champagne like that too? Uh, champagne is like that. Wow. But there's there's a lot more complexity in Champagne because you've got different villages that have been classified certain ways historically. Okay. Uh and are you putting Premier Cru and Grand Cru and stuff like that on oh, there? Good so, God. Okay. So that's yeah. a, a little bit more in depth. But um, so, so what kind of soil? So either alluvial soils. So think oh. of like you know uh, runoff, sedimentary, like ancient river. And that's with an A. Alluvial. Alluvial. Yep. Alluvial. Um, calcareous. So a high chalk content, uh, which can make your wines really racy. Um, if you are grown on calcareous types of soil, um, high, high calcium carbonate content, basically think of fossilized things. Okay. Uh, marine, fossilized marine sediment, basically. Um, clay is another very common, uh, soil here as well as uh, there's a small amount of silex, which is like a flinty soil. Okay. So any combination of those soils, if you decide to go grow on gravelly, you know, Lord right. knows what, muddy, yeah. something or other. I mean, you just list four soils. I'm like stretching to find how there could be a fifth in the world. I don't oh, know. Oh, man, there's like, there's, <laughs> we could talk about lus, we could talk about silt, we could go okay. all the live long day. Okay. Uh, we won't do that now, though. Okay. Um, so on those soils, then you need to 
If you want to go make billions of hectoliters of Chinon, yeah. if you want to harvest a ton of grape varietals, or excuse me, a, a, a ton of grapes to make X amount, you can't mm-hmm. do that. You have okay. to, you the most that you can choose, that you can harvest and make wine out of, is using 55 hectoliters, so think of, that's uh, multiply that by 100, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. per hectare. So you can't go and try to make 4,000 hectoliters of wine out of wow. one hectare. You can't. Why? I mean, I know it's what the rule says, but they're, why is they're that basically, a rule? They're basically saying that they want, if they limit the amount that you can produce, yep. meaning the amount of you're going to have to trim some fruit, you're going to need to find equilibrium in your vine. Oh, I see. Okay. You okay. can't just let your vine go crazy right. and it your one vine produces like 40 kilos of grapes. I mean, yeah. that's, that would never happen. But they're trying to say you got to rein it in a little bit for quality purposes, right? Okay. Um, so that's another thing. You've got a certain amount that you can produce. Um, and then they're also saying when you harvest it, how ripe are your grapes? They can't be underripe. They can't be too too overripe. They're saying you need to be at least, I think it's like 9 or 10% alcohol potential alcohol. So they're going to test... Because ripeness affects how much alcohol is in the... Correct. And they what they don't want is for you to pour chinon and have it taste like a weed. Like they oh. want it to taste fruity. Well, what kind of weed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they want it, but they want it to, they want it to have adequate amount of fruity characteristics. They don't want it to be green, you know? So they say sure. you have to pick it at, I think the, the, the amount of... Grams per liter of residual sugar is like 150, just over 150 grams per liter of residual sugar. And all that's weighed, right? So when okay. as you're like harvesting your grapes and as you're bringing in your samples and as you're saying, I'm going to pick and I'm going to make Chinon, there's someone in a suit being like, are you really? For real. Let's, well, I mean, they're going to come and test stuff yeah. at wow. some point, you know, during harvest, after harvest, to make sure that you're not yeah. picking at 8% alcohol. Right. You know, or... so. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. But like, you know, here in the Midwest, there are certain times where we would plant soybeans or where we would plant corn. So mm-hmm. like for people who live in this region of the Loire Valley, is it just everybody knows, okay, time to pick the grapes. Otherwise, if you leave them on too long, it's going to get too ripe. Or if you are like, does everybody just know this year, it looks like next week, everybody's going to start picking their yep, Cab usually, Franc grapes. For, yep. Okay. Usually the, there's uh, in a lot of regions, there's a harvest date set by the governing body. Like, oh, for real? Like, okay, guys, uh, it's going to be around this date. Yeah, and it's it's usually regulated. Now, I'm sure there are ways around it, like if you can prove, if you can go and say, look at, oh, my gosh, I've got a ton of sun this year. Mm-hmm. Mine's ready to, to pick do, a year yeah. or a, a week early. If not, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Yeah. You can, you know, I mean, you write checks to the right people, you can probably get <laughs> things done, <laughs> I imagine. But, no, I mean, yeah. um, okay. you know, most people know, oh, the harvest is a little bit later this year a little yeah. earlier this year, and okay. dates are usually set by the governing That's body. That's amazing, because nobody sets those dates for corn and soybeans. Everybody's just like, it's time to get that shit in the ground right now. Right now, yep. If it weren't raining, we would have got it in two weeks ago kind of thing. You know yep. what I mean? So. Yep. And so what, what all this is set up to say is they're giving us a theme. Yeah. They're saying it needs to... And then there's also, at the end of it all, you need to go to the governing body and say, here's my bottle of wine, taste it and approve it. And then and, give me my label. And then give me my label. Yep. yep. And I'll wow. pay for and I'll pay and they for have the, to do that every freaking year. Yep. And and, oh. and I'll pay you for the ability to have yeah. that name on the label, of course. <laughs> but so what that shows us is it gives us it gives us 
parameters. It's mm-hmm. the mel- they're giving us the melody, mm-hmm. and what the all the producers in Shinon are doing is giving us variations yeah. on the melody that you're going to be able to hopefully recognize in a in a blind tasting if you were tasting yeah. it without being knowing what it is. You should know it's in, in the sommelier world. You should know that it's Shinon. And if you're not a sommelier, then you're you know if you're a patron, you like Shinon, you might go, oh, I've tried Shinon one. I'm going to try Shinon two because I know it's going to be sort of like this. Yeah. Um, so. Well, look, can we try Shinon two? Let's 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 do it. So yeah. So we're tasting right now Shinon number two which is a really fun wine from 2017 from a producer who um, sometimes uses native yeast, sometimes does not. Uh, They ferment in, these are about 20-year-old vines uh, that it's done in stainless steel, fermented in stainless steel. Does it have to be, Chinon has to be in stainless steel? Chinon can be in stainless steel, it can be in oak. Oh, it can. It can be in oak for sure. Um, People, if they have older vines... They have less yield. You know, it's maybe going to be their their higher end wine. Mm-hmm. They may put it in some oak to give it some mm-hmm. refinement or okay. give it some complexity. So it's when you say it's stainless steel, it's fermenting and stored in Correct. stainless steel. Correct. Okay. Yep. Sometimes when I say it's done in, that's yeah. just like that's all of it's all of done it. in. <laughs> it's just yep. done in stainless steel. Yep. Okay. Um, and so this is meant to be like usually, you know, Chinon. A lot of Chinon starts at twenty five bucks. Okay. You know? uh, and this is slightly less expensive. A lot of uh, so it's an easy drinking. You know, you're doing it in stainless steel. It's an easy drinking, fun, lighthearted chinon. Excellent. Let's give it a little taste. See what you think. Cheers. Chin chin. Do you notice that little bit of like herbaceousness? That little bit of like fall leaves. Just a little bit of graphite. I can smell that. Yeah. I wouldn't call. I don't know that I would have described it as herbaceous. It smells flowerier to me than Chinon one. It tastes a little lighter too, maybe? So much lighter. There's way less fireworks. Like density. Yeah, it's very watery and very, like I said, the other one was flat. This is like a double flat if we were going to be doing music words. Okay, (laughs) all right. Which, again, not bad, but it's so... um, it's just so subtly flavored, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this is, um, that could be a number of many different things. That could be a factor of young vines. That could be a factor of non-native yeast fermentation. Um, what this is, what I think this wine is meant to do, it's a really fun um, variation on Chinon because it's lighter. It's mm-hmm. kind of easy, it's bright, it's not too, with too much emphasis on that green sort of, um, you know, the graphite and pencilette and fall leaves, it's not too heavy-handed on that. Sometimes they can be pretty, like, I don't want to say weedy, because that contradicts what I was just saying about picking later, you know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but Cabernet Franc, this is meant to be, you know, throw it in the fridge, get a light chill on it, and have it with dinner, have it with some, you know, some meze or some tapas or like some light fare. You know, yeah. you're not yeah. you're not going to sit around with your wine friends and beat this to death for three hours talking about how complex it is. It's for just sure. like fun to like tip it back. Yep. Put it, you know, we're doing it a service, putting it in some stemware, but put it in a tumbler if you want yeah. <laughs> and just like have fun with it. Um, yeah. Which is I agree. a I fun agree. variation to Chinon, which can sometimes be pretty heady yeah. and pretty aromatically complex. This is like a nice light fruity version of it, I think. This is very light and fruity. Numb. Easy. I'm really interested to taste the other one. 
well, back to back. Uh, let's do that. Dumping. Dumping. So this producer here um, is very well known for, they're a pretty big producer. Um, they've got like 100 plus hectares that they've acquired. This is wine one. This is wine number one. Thank she you. one. Um, that is a pretty great, uh, you know, for the size of the producer at 100 hectares plus, they've been around for well over four generations. Oh, so wow. they've, you know, they've solely been just acquiring through marriages, probably <laughs> through some money making, yeah. um, more and more vineyards on various different soils. This is done in the same way, which is why I bought it. All stainless steel. Vines are 20 plus years old. Um this is done with a native ferment, so indigenous yeast. They're not adding yeast to it. It's just yeast that uh, reside on the grapes. So give this a try and tell me All right. well, what you think. This is a second try. Yeah. It's less floral, yeah. I think. Yeah. Didn't I, did I say that? Did I say that one was flowerier than this I one? I think, yeah, you yeah. thought this, that the wine, wine number two, two was, was floral. Okay, good. It's got way more acid and way more tannin, like... Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Um, it it actually feels now that I taste wine one again. It this tastes less fruity to me. This mm. tastes more structured. Yeah, and it could be as fruity, but the structure is taking over. You know, like my mm. mouth is watering more. Mm -hmm. There's that more tannin on my gums. What the drying effect of wine. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting. Yeah. And yeah. this is to show two different profiles made the same way in yeah. the same region, yeah. if you were to taste these two weeks apart, the differences might not be perceived. Yeah. But I guess before I ask you your thoughts on the variations of these two in, yeah. in, in more depth, mm -hmm. uh, can we, can we, Ives? I Ives love was, to Ives. Ives was a new one for me. It, I, I would imagine you're not going to be alone in that. I have heard the name and I've heard, a, you know, I've heard, I know things here and there, but I really know nothing about him. Mm -hmm. I couldn't name a piece if you asked me. Yeah. So tell me more. Charles Ives, uh, American composer, which, and one of the er, certainly most eccentric <laughs> composers in that time period in America. He was loony in, a, in the best ways. He was a, he thought differently and less conventionally than most composers. You know, he, he had a dad who was a band director or something yeah, along tell, those tell lines. Yeah, tell me this, tell the story yeah. about the, the band because that's yeah. so funny. Tell yeah. the story. I, I can't remember exactly if his dad was a band director or just a, I, I, whatever. Wasn't but. he an insurance salesman? Did you say something yeah, like that? He was yeah. like, he did that too? Yeah. Ives, Charles Ives did, yeah, um, a family business. and But his dad loved music, and so, you know, around the dinner table for entertainment, they would sing, but he would make the kids sing in different keys. Like, they would all sing simultaneously in different keys, which, I mean, if you're doing that when you're young, you're going to get a really interesting exposure to harmony. Yeah, wow. And the, because like if we're all singing row, row, row your boat and we're going around and around, but I'm in D major and you're in B flat major and, you know, somebody else is in, Whoa. you know, C major or E flat minor, you know, I mean, it's just like everybody's doing all this really complex harmony together. Yeah. But, you know, so, uh, so that certainly affected his, uh, you know, compositional process a lot. And, 
So when you listen what to we, Ives, what did you say he was 1870s? He, he was born in 1874 oh, yeah, 1870 to, something to like the 1970s or something. He lived a long 54. Time. I just looked at my notes. 54. 1954. 1954 okay. yeah, when he died. So this piece we're going to listen to is a piece he wrote. Um, it's called Variations on America. And America being my country, tis of thee, right? My country, tis of thee. Or you could think of it as God Save the King or God Save the Queen, which is the national anthem of uh, the United Kingdom um, and the national anthem of literally dozens yeah, of other I think countries like around the world. Luxembourg has, like, yeah, somewhere, like it's, somewhere Central Europe has yep, basically the same theme. Hilarious. It's a very common theme to have as a national anthem. So uh, it's, not an, it's, it's not unknown. Like People are familiar with this melody. And so Ives, when he was like 17 years old, he was a very good organist. He played church organ quite well. And so he wrote this for organ. And then a number of years later, a different American composer uh, turned it into a piece for orchestra. So it took Ives' organ arrangement and put it to orchestra. And we're going to listen to the orchestral version because there's just so much more. There's all the colors and it's it's yeah. delightful. So, and didn't he write it as a patriotic, like he wrote it for the 4th of July yeah. like to celebrate that or something, or to release it? Yeah. Okay. And you can just imagine what, <laughs> imagine in like 1891, was that when he wrote it? 1891? Yeah. yeah. Um, he's playing this in church, and just imagine like all the 80-year-olds in there listening to him, listen, like from this 17-year-old kid, this really bombastic in a lot of ways, uh, very kind of twisted in a fun way yeah. version variations on my country tis of thee. I mean it's it's a so good. It's just a romp when I think of it. And and a lot of Ives music is like that, kind of like a lot of it is almost like a drunken composer kind of bashing through a piece, you know, but in some not yeah. all of his music is like that, but um certainly a lot of it kind of can give off that vibe, and I, I feel like this this piece does too. So what Ives does with this piece is he actually puts a little introduction on there before he plays the actual theme, probably because everybody knew it already. So he does a little bit of an intro, then he plays the theme, and then he does his When variations. you say everybody knew it already. Well, everybody knew the the melody already. Okay. Everybody knew My Country, Tis of Thee. Okay. Yeah. So he took that. Yep. And then he expanded, okay, yeah, upon yeah, it. Yeah, okay, totally. So, shall we? This is all introduction. The intro is kind of lengthy. Here's the theme. 
nice and slow. Very easy no for ever everybody. Heard this melody. <laughs> Presenting, right? Yep. Variation one. <laughs> Such a funny variation. And you can hear the xylophone just hammering mm -hmm. away in the percussion, which is fun. Come out and play, Oliver. <laughs> the little rat says in the kids' film. Yes, exactly. Here's variation two. Such a tone change. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit more. Is dissonant the right word? Like it sounds a little bit more. Yes, for sure. Chromatic. There's just a lot of chromatics, which, if you look at the music, you can see there's all these note alterations happening here. It's not just. We're not just in F major. We're in like. We're. We Got are, lots of but flats. We're, yeah, People are like changing notes It looks like someone just took a stamp of black and smacked it on a couple <laughs> measures yeah. just for goodsies. Yep. These are all the kids singing around the table. Yes. In various keys. Exactly. Okay, so... So this is an interlude. Can an interlude be a variation? Because I'm hearing the melody. Because it's not a full, it's not going to be a full statement. It's not going to full, okay. It's not going to be a full It's not going to do the full melody. It's just going to, it's going to give us a few teasers in a it, different. It did not play the whole melody. So that was an interlude. Here's variation three. County fair, right? So towny. Yep. Very towny. If another place where my cabin was had some class, they'd be playing this for the 4th of July. The other thing, if you hear the, the tri... <laughs> Bassoon, flute, clarinet. There's triangle. Uh, there's snare drum and cymbals, which are all Turkish instruments. 
you know, from the old Janissary bands, their old military bands. Snare drum, bass drum, cymbals, triangle, that's all Turkish. Variation four. This is a polonaise. Interesting. This is very. What does uh, polonaise mean? Well, it's like a, a like a Polish waltz kind of. Okay. Like uh, Chopin wrote a lot of polonaise okay. and stuff. Yeah. Maybe east, just maybe Eastern European, so I don't get myself in trouble. But yeah. Yeah. And you can hear that with the the castanets. Clack, 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 clack. Yeah. Clack, 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 clack. And a lot of people think the, that yeah, when we talk about um, Spanish. Gypsies, a lot of people think that those are very Spanish, but gypsies, yeah. in fact, that hails from Central Europe. Sure. So yep. Awesome. Yep. Awesome little piece of history. Yes. Love it. Here's another interlude, so again, we're not going to hear the whole melody here. everybody off in their own world all at the same time (laughs) I love it here's the fifth variation now in the organ version this is done in the left not the left this is done in the feet in the organ version the trumpet part that you're hearing oh my gosh (laughs) that's all supposed to be done in the feet my eyes are as big around as the microphone right now yeah Now we're back to material that we heard at the beginning, right? To just wrap everything up and Dakota, say, say, let's right finish. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some symbols. Symbols. And with that, the sun comes out in Minneapolis. Yes. Charles Ives, everyone. Gosh, enlightening. And it's so cool to hear, because, I mean, I don't know, I, I guess I can, a rhetorical question for listeners is, like, how many times have you heard something similar where, you know, a little a little ditty of classical music gets stuck in your head, you know, in this sort of vein where you've heard this melody that trickles through the entire song, yet you you might not be able, you might not recognize, oh, it's, these are all variations on the, yeah. but you hear this melody consistently yeah. throughout however many minutes of a piece. Mm-hmm. And yet it sounds like it sounds like it's entirely own thing, you know, mm-hmm, because it's mm-hmm. done 
and, and more complex because it's done in some cases, like we just heard, four times, six times, eight yeah. times. And then the Goldberg variation is just like, whoa, something like that where it's yeah. 32 times where yeah, it says yeah. crazy. Well, yeah, that, that piece is much longer and much more complex and has a much different purpose than something like this. And, uh, you know, if anyone who knows me knows that Goldberg is probably my top piece ever. Like it's my favorite piece of music in the whole world. So why wouldn't I talk about Goldberg variations today? And it's because it's way too complex for that. There's way too many other fun things to talk about when talking about Goldberg variations than yeah. just the fact that there's this in, 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 and that's a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach doesn't call it a theme. He calls it an aria. And so he presents the aria, then he plays all the variations, and then you hear the aria again at the end. Um, Sounds but, like an episode idea. <sighs> you, can, you can go there. Such a great, I mean, I don't even, uh, but yeah, that's a that's a great, wonderful, beautiful example of a theme and variations. Again, Beethoven wrote a bunch of them. Brahms wrote some very beautiful themes and variations. So if people wanted to look up these pieces, can they yeah. put in their search engine Bach or Brahms theme and variations, and it's going to come up? Or do you need to yeah, know that it's the Sonata number 12? Uh, if you're you using know, a normal search theme. engine like Google, go Google that all day. Mm -hmm. Bach theme and variations. Yes, something will come up. It'll list the types of pieces that he wrote that are like that. If you go to Spotify and type Bach theme and variations, it's going to be like no search results found. Yeah. Because Bach didn't name any piece theme, theme and, and variations. Variation. Sure. But like... Uh, all kinds of people. Well, like Handel, Baroque composer, there's the harmonious blacksmith. So there's <laughs> lots of examples. I'll make a list, I'll put it online, and you'll all love it all. Cheers to scores and pours. Cheers to scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Episode 9 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam, Sam Keen, Keen, Keen. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.